All right, turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to finish up chapter 2 today. God willing. And uh, man, I just, I know I say this every week, but it was so, man, this, this is so good. This is one of the best sections of scripture in all of the Bible, just like last week and the week before and the week before. Uh, the Bible is just magnificent. If you would stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 14 through 18. <clears throat> Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. You may be seated. So as we move through this morning, uh, the scripture, I want to just kind of briefly, uh, un well, briefly, <laughs> I don't do anything briefly, but I want to unpack for you uh, as much as I can from this text. And trust me, it is jam-packed. We could do the whole day sermon on this. Oh, and about the all-day sermon, I am stoked about that. I'm excited. I hope you guys are excited. There's like four. Praise God. We will do it with all five of us. Amen. Um, just some info about the all-day preaching. <clears throat> As Star had mentioned, we're going to do the service as normal, okay? And so uh, if you have plans you can't get out of, fine. When we get done uh, that morning, we're going to dismiss, and we'll have lunch provided for everyone who's going to hang out and stay. Okay, we'll eat lunch. We'll come back in here. 1.30 or somewhere around in there, just whenever we get done, and we'll come back in, and we'll start again. I, I don't think I'm going to pick back up in Hebrews, because all of the people who don't stay around, who can't stay, uh, I don't want them to miss out on what we do in Hebrews, and so we'll probably do something else. I'm just, I've been studying, just kind of listening to the Lord, see where he wants me to go. So we're just going to kind of do it that way, just kind of follow the Spirit. With all of that being said, it will be a little less formal than it is like it, like most Sunday mornings where it's just me teaching and giving information. There will be a lot of that. That's fine. But I, what I want to do is I want to give opportunity to stop me and ask some questions. Um, if you've got an insight, Lord's pressing on your heart, maybe a testimony, uh, anything like that. So it will be more in a discussion type format uh, that you can stop me as I move through the scriptures and uh, we can kind of we can kind of interact with each other a little bit. Chris, did you have something you want to add? Oh, amen, amen. Okay, I saw a weird look on his face. <laughs> I haven't decided whether or not I want to stream it live yet. Um, I've went back and forth on that. Uh, yeah, maybe post it later. Uh, we may we may do it live. And listen, if you're thinking 
man, there's no way I can stay here till 8 o'clock at night doing that. You know, I just don't love God's word that much. <coughs> you see what I did there? Uh, no, so it being informal like this too, I, I really am sincerely saying this. If you want to hang out for an additional hour, then hang out for an hour. You know, get up and, and go. That's fine. There's no obligations here. I really do just pray that it's a blessing. We'll see how it goes. And, you know, if we have two people stay, well, you know, it, it, where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. But uh, it may, if it goes really well, and, and you guys seem really hungry, I'm not getting, it's funny because as many complaints as I get about being long-winded, which aren't many, I don't know, I, I, they're out there. I think people just, they're scared to talk to me about it or something. But I get as many complaints from people saying, stop talking about time. Just go. It's the Holy Spirit, you know. So anyway, we're going we're gonna to see how it goes. And if it's really cool and really awesome and the Lord shows up and we're fed and, you know, then we might do it again. Maybe once every six months or whatever. I don't know. We'll see, we'll see what happens. I think it's a pretty cool idea. Uh, and we do see it in the scripture. So we're going to move back to like a, an early church you know, interactive thing where the whole body kind of kind of does its thing. Oh, and one other thing before I move on into the um, unpacking of the scripture. If I could get like maybe six to eight people to, to partner together for a road. So the kids, Kidwell will end uh, at 12 when the service ends, and we won't have Kidwell again. But if I can get a, about eight people, two by twos, to rotate, then if some of the kids want to go out and play on the playground, we'll have a couple of adults out there hanging out with them, just letting them play, run around, wear themselves out. Maybe they pass out in the rubber mulch. Uh, and then, you know, like maybe 30 minutes to an hour, whatever, and then you switch off with the other two so that you can come in and, and get the word and be involved in this in here. So if there are six to eight men or women out there that will help me do that, just come up and talk to me after the service, and I'll jot your name down, and that way I know I can count on you that we can – that we can do that. And I don't mind them being in here at all. Uh, I'm kind of got tunnel vision. I, I, don't, I don't get distracted very easily. Not to say I don't ever, but all right. So hope you can hang around for that. All right. Hebrews chapter two. Really excited about today's message. So <clears throat> what I'm going to do today is, is that I'm just going to, this is the whole text that we're looking at today that we're going to unpack. I just want to read through the whole thing one more time. And I just want to kind of give a brief overview of what's being taught here so that I'm not rushing to get to the end, that I've already kind of briefly touched on everything in the passage that we're looking at, so that if I don't make it to the end, then you've already, you've, you've already been uh, enlightened to what at least I understand this to be saying, okay? So let's move through it here uh, briefly and kind of touch on it. And we did get it to where we could put it up on the screens to the side here too, so I thought that was pretty cool. Hebrews 2, 14 and 18, since therefore, you know, always important words, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that, here's a very, another very important word, that through death he might destroy, we'll look at this word right here too, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, okay? And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Let's pause there for a second. Um, very simply, what's being said here is nothing new. We've already witnessed this in the previous section of Scripture where we say that the sanctified 
the sanctifier and the sanctifier of all have one source that he became like us in order that he might do the work that needed to be done so that he wouldn't uh, be ashamed to call us brothers. So that, that Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, who is God, came down out of heaven and took upon himself humanity in order to do the work that needed to be done. He had to be made like us so that he could pay the penalty that we had incurred. He had to be a man in order to be the atoning sacrifice that he was. And so he took on flesh and blood. He, this word partook means that he put himself right in the middle of it. Remember that text that we ended on last week in 13? It said that he sings his praises in the middle of the congregation. All that is kind of pointing to this idea that we don't have a God that's far off out there somewhere untouchable in the sky. No, we have a God that came and made his home among us, that he is one of us. And by faith in Christ, we become children of God and that we are joined together with him as one family. And he comes in and sits among us. And he's, remember I said last week, he's proud of us. And that makes the ultra-sovereign grace guys, you know, a little uncomfortable because they don't really like that, you know, God actually might like people sometimes. But Jesus loves people. He loves the believers. He loves his children. And he's arm in arm with them, throws his arm around them. He's like, this is my boy, you know. And he, it says, I've, I took you to the past where it says, if you're not ashamed of me and you proclaim my name before men, I proclaim your name to the Father. And that's just amazing to me that Jesus Christ is, is going to be standing there. And even now, I believe he's interceding on our behalf. Even now that Jesus is sitting to the right of the Father, I just have this picture. It's just a picture. I just have this picture of the second member of the Trinity who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Is just jabbing old pops on the on the rib there with his elbow going that's running down there see what he's doing look at that look at that i did good in him didn't i, I did, that's matt down there man that's john you know and i just have this picture i'm like man that is just gorgeous beautiful that god made his home among us and he he partook he came down and to the right in the middle of it the same things that through death this is going to be really cool i hope that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that death was the death was the means that he destroyed death that he used Satan's weapon against him. And it brings back to mind, I had, you know, I, I've planned this sermon 18 times in my mind, and I was going to tell you the story of David and Goliath, where David, the, the shepherd boy who is nobody, goes out onto the battlefield to fight against Goliath, who is this giant, powerful uh, entity that no one can defeat. And why? Because of the fear of death, they won't even go out to fight against him because they're quaking in their boots and they're terrified, right? But David, who has no fear of death because he knows the Lord, marches right on out on the battlefield. Him and his all five foot two, Jake, you know, uh, and, and he marches right out there. He takes his little sling and hits him in the head and destroys him. But you know what happens after that? A lot of people, sorry about that, Jake. I just, you know, it was the gray hair thing that I come out with it for. David then, then, sometimes we miss this. David then goes and does what? He takes Goliath's sword and cuts Goliath's head off with his own sword. That's Jesus. 
He's the one that goes out on the battlefield when everyone else was terrified. He's the one that slays the beast with his own sword. The power of Satan is the fear of death. And he is, has a, a type of dominion in this world. And he, has, he exercises that dominion with the fear of death and this, this power. And we're going to talk about what that power is of death that he's, he's wielding and he's just slaying people. And Jesus is like, come at me. And when he does, he takes that sword and cuts his own head off with his own sword. That's beautiful. And deliver all those who, this is that, it's going to be tied in, through fear of death. We really need to figure out what that is. We're subject to lifelong slavery. For, so he delivers through being killed. He, he killed and destroyed Satan through being killed by Satan so that we would be delivered from slavery into life. So we would be freed from death. So it's really, it's really cool and intricate. For surely it is not angels that he helps. Now this takes us back, doesn't it, to the earlier parts of chapter 2 when he's talking about the, the world to come is not subjected to, to angels. Who's it subjected to? We walk through that. It's subjected to human beings. But we lost that dominion because we had sinned and not trusted God and we were cast out of the garden, separated from God, and uh, we had placed ourselves in subjection to fallen angels, namely uh, the devil. And so he, he roams around, he exercises this power of death, whatever that means, but through Christ, this uh, subjection, this dominion order is restored and reinstituted and it has begun even now and will be culminated and perfected and and uh, fully known in the world to come so in the new heavens and the new earth it will be uh rearranged reinstituted and he reiterates it he says it's not angels that that christ came to save if christ would have wanted to save angels what would he have had to become an angel you've got to pay for that debt by whatever incurred that debt. That's just how it works. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. We're going to really look into that too, because who is that? Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. This right here is probably where I won't get to spend as much time as I want with all of the Old Testament allusions and stuff, but I will touch on it. In the service to God, to make, now this is going to be the huge thing right here, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This word right here, and I just want to make a brief comment <clears throat> about church services and churches generally speaking. Most of your churches, most of the people in your churches they're not going to have a clue. They're not even ever going to heard this word before. How many of you have, you know, never heard this word before uh, maybe three months ago or six months ago? How many have never heard that word before? Raise your hands way up high. Okay, how many of you did not understand what that word meant, but you had heard it before? The sad thing is, is that this right here, th what this word means is the crux of the gospel. It is what distinguishes, in many ways, 
Jesus Christ from all the other religions, from all the other supposed methods to bring you to God or to make you whole or to, for you to be saved. So we're going to break that down. Propitiation, I'll just give you as we run through this brief overview, is the act of satisfying the wrath of God in order to bring unity with God. It is, appe it is appeasing God who demands justice for the wrongs that's been committed. Propitiation does that. It satisfies the wrath of God. It appeases the wrath of God so that we might be reunited and joined uh, together with God. It is, it is the means of atonement. <clears throat> and then the last part here is really beautiful and practical, and uh, hopefully this will be very meaningful to many of us today. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, we don't serve a God who is way up there. We serve a God who has come down here and made his home among us. But even further than that, not only did he come down here and dwell among us to say, okay, I'm going to do this because I'm more powerful than you, and I'm going to exert my divine power to make it happen. No, the way he accomplished salvation was to become like us even in our uh, suffering, even in our temptation, so that he had been to the very, very bottom of the pit and knew what you had gone through even better than what you knew that you had gone through so that he can actually be a God that's in the heavens but also be a man who says, I know exactly where you're coming from. I've been there. I've felt that. I've come through it, and I can help you get through it because what's on top of you, what's bearing down on you, and what's crushing you, I've been under that exact same thing but with all of its force, and I made it, and I know how to make it. So when you come to me with your burdens, I can show you exactly how to deal with those burdens because I bore the exact same burdens to an even greater degree. So basically saying, you can trust me. You can trust me because I've been there. Remember last week when I talked to you about me feeling what he was saying about um, being becoming one or, or being one source and becoming like his brothers and and I could just feel that in my bones because of how I can relate to those people that had walked where I walked and other pastors they can relate to other people a lot better than I can because they've walked where they're where they've walked and it's just kind of this place where if I'm going to get help it's not as if I can't get help from somebody who's not walked in my shoes the truth of God's word is the truth of God's word it helps but there's something about being able to talk to somebody who loves the Lord, who has been there, who knows what I'm going through, and has come through it themselves. Isn't there just something about that? Well, Jesus is the perfect uh, display of both. He is the Word of God who has entered into the greatest suffering and temptations imaginable, and he has come through. He is the perfect uh, sympathetic high priest that we, that we need and that we have at our disposal. And so this is kind of a, a rough breakdown of it. Now we just want to, so I've got, uh, you've walked through this passage. You have a, a general understanding, a pretty good understanding of what this means now. Now let's kind of get down into the nuts and bolts of it and see <coughs> uh, if we can dig some truths out that'll bless you. So 2.14, a little heading here, the great exchange. You've heard of the great exchange before. We've talked about it. Um, I think the biggest or the most famous theologian that I know of that coined this phrase was, 
Martin Luther, you know, this great exchange. And that, this is the idea that is found here in this verse, that he became like us, that he died in our place, that we might live in his place. So where we deserve death, we should have been hanging on the cross. Christ, because of his great love for God and for us, takes our place. So he says, listen, I will switch places with you. I will exchange myself for you so that you can live and I'll die where you should have died. The great exchange. So since therefore the children uh, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So first, as we're looking here, we see that it was necessary that Christ take on humanity in order to satisfy the required penalty that humanity incurred. So we understand through the text of the Old Testament that in order to pay for human sin, there had to be a human sacrifice. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that blood, the uh, blood, uh, Goats were sacrificed, lambs were sacrificed. There was all kind of animal sacrifices for different things and for different offerings and this and that. Um, but in the temple, <coughs> in the tabernacle, there was sacrifices made <coughs> on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And this was for the high priest to come in and to purify himself with washing. And he had to make sure that his heart was pure and that he would go into the holy place and that he would do the work in the holy place he would light he would light the manure and he would do these things he would uh sacrifice a, a goat he would sacrifice a bull he would sacrifice make a sacrifice he would take that blood into the holy of holies and he would sprinkle it all on the mercy seat and the ark of the covenant he would throw blood everywhere and you know we kind of read that and we just kind of gloss over it but we don't we fail to think about it though really it is a bloody gruesome uh event like, I, it's amazing to me that we gloss over that. So the whole, think about the Holy of Holies. You know, you've got this intricately designed Ark of the Covenant with these beautiful seraphim that are over it and their wings are hovering over it. And it's, uh, you know, you've got the, the rod of Aaron in there and you've got all this beautiful intrinsic carvings. I just imagine in my, you know, these moldings. And, and then the high priest comes in and he's throwing blood all over the place, just buckets of blood it's just splashing and if you've ever had a cut you know how like the blood will run on your arm or on your clothes and it gets dried and crusty and it's just you know it's hard to get off sometimes well think all of this blood and there i to my knowledge i don't remember the uh set standard or process of cleaning all of that you know maybe they cleaned all that. i don't know how that worked but you know, you can just imagine, even if you did try to clean it, getting all that blood out from the cracks and everything, the bottom line is, is that there was blood everywhere. It was a massacre. It was a massacre in the Holy of Holies. And so what did this picture? It pictured that what the Bible says is that where there's sin, there must be blood. And all of these animals were sacrificed in order to bring about purification or the cleansing of sin. But did it ever really work? Anybody know? No. The book of Hebrews tells us, actually, in chapter 10, it says, we know that the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sins. What was it for then? It was a shadow. It was a type. It was pointing to the work that the Lamb of God would do for his people. And it was uh, leading them to that place where they would see what it, what it did. Now, just to bring it, well, I'll, I'll bring that out when we get further along. Uh, so he had to share in flesh and blood 
in order to be that sacrifice that would actually pay. So a sac an angel couldn't come to do the work. It had to be a human. Uh, they could sacrifice animals all day long, and they did so for thousands of years. It never actually took away sin. It only pointed to the one who would take away sin. It couldn't be animals. It couldn't be an angel. It couldn't be, it couldn't be anything except a human. It had to be a human sacrifice because it was human sin that had to be paid for. And so it was necessary that Christ take on humanity. Next, his death was the means by which he would destroy Satan. Now, this is, this is really cool. And as I was studying this, uh, I was, had about five different directions to go in. But I landed on what I'm going to show you here in just a moment because I think that we need to feel this in our bones. We need to feel this in our bones. What does it mean that he destroyed Satan? So he himself likewise partook of the same things, meaning that he became like us so that he could give the proper sacrifice that had to be made, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. We're going to look at both of these. So <coughs> destroy here as we look at it, Destroy here does not mean annihilate. It can't mean annihilate. Why? Satan's still alive. Satan's still alive and well. And he's, he's working all around us, is he not? He's working all around us. So what does it mean when he says that through death he might destroy this word right here? What, what does that mean? So as we break down what the word destroy means... We come to understand that he rendered it inoperative, that he took away the successfulness of its works. So I'll give you that. I, I took a screenshot of a quote out of a, one of the commentaries. Um, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Dr. Fruchtenbaum, uh, had, uh, had this in his commentary. I thought it was pretty good. He says, uh, the Bible reads destroy, but the Greek word is Cartageo, uh, and it does not mean to destroy, but to render inoperative. And I thought this was a pretty good line right after it. He said the same word is used concerning the Mosaic law, which we'll really get into next week in chapter 3. Check this out, though. The Mosaic law was not destroyed. And I've told you this time and time and time again. Remember, later on in Hebrews chapter 8, it's going to say that the Mosaic law, the Old Covenant, was, obs it was made obsolete and ready to vanish away. It was disappearing. But was the Mosaic Law, law Code destroyed so that, it was, so that it was eradicated from the earth, eradicated from human beings being able to get a hold of it and read it? No, it wasn't destroyed. It was made obsolete. It was rendered inoperative. It, was, it did not have the same effect on people that it did at one time because of this transition. Here he says, the Mosaic law was not destroyed, but it was rendered inoperative, and as a result, it does not hold any legal authority over the believer anymore. Now, don't mistake that for that it doesn't have any significance for the believer anymore. We've preached on that a thousand times, and you understand that the Old Testament is perfectly relevant and beautiful and enlightening when it's read through, the, through a new covenant lens, through a Christocentric lens, that we understand what those things were pointing to and what they actually uh, were saying and where they led to. Here, the, the word destroy carries much of that same meaning. So the, the, the enemy, the devil, is still alive, 
but he's been rendered inoperative. Now, some of you have a hard time believing that because you feel like that the, that the enemy still exerts forces and powers over you. Now, if he does, let me say this, and, and please listen to me. If Satan still renders power over you, it can only be because of two reasons that I can find in the text. Either, one, you're not actually a true believer, and you're still under the power and penalty of sin. You're still under the, the, the dominion of the devil and, and the dominion of Satan. You've never been regenerate. You've never been born into the family of God. Okay? Or two, you have been born into the family of God, but you have you have now went back and submitted yourself again to the bonds of slavery when there's no need and no use to do that. You have put the chains back on yourself. Like a dog returns to its own vomit. The vomit's out. The dog goes back over. He's been released from the, the sickness. You know, human beings, dogs, they vomit to get something that is foreign out. That's the body's reaction. And so in the gospel, you know, the one who returns to his sin is like a dog who returns to its vomit. That's the picture. And you say, that's disgusting. Well, it is disgusting. It's disgusting when Christ has set you free from your sin and you go right back over there and lick it up. That's the exact same thing. So those are the two reasons. But what I want to tell you today is, is that if you're a believer, you're not under the dominion of Satan. You are not in bondage anymore. You have the power to walk away. You have the power to stand up under temptation that God will provide you what you need in the time that you need it to bear up that burden that you are not slaves anymore. And so <clears throat> we understand it this way, that through death he might uh, render powerless the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, you know, I had maybe planned on going and spending a good bit of time here, but I think I want to spend that time somewhere else. But just suffice it to say that, we, as we talked about with uh, David and Goliath, uh, that uh, Christ has done the work that needed to be done by using the devil's power against him. Now, this, here's what's pretty cool. Some would see that as in <clears throat> only in the fact that Jesus Christ died, okay? And that is true. And what I mean is this, is that through the physical, actual, literal death of Jesus Christ, death now is rendered powerless. The devil is rendered powerless to all of those who would enter in through Christ because the death Christ died is the death that you should have died. Does that make sense? So, in other words, you're, you won't die that death because Jesus died in your place. But is that the physical death that Jesus died? Well, will you die physically? Yes, unless the Lord returns, we'll all die physically. So, if Jesus died the death we should have died, but we're still going to die physically, what, how does that work? What death is this talking about? Our soul, our life, our, our unique uh, unity with God, right? It's been severed through Adam. All are dead in their transgressions and sins, correct? The death that Christ frees us from is 
soul death, separation from God forever and ever and ever and ever. And when Jesus Christ says, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? He lets us understand that the full cup of the wrath of God did not abide in the whipping and in the nails and in the scrubbing of the back going up and down the cross as he was trying to breathe in air before he, he suffocated to death under the weight of his own body and the blood that was filling his lungs. No, the greatest portion of the wrath in the cup was the forsakenment of the Son by the Father, relationally speaking, as he descended into the grave to pay the debt that you should have paid. Now, why do I say all of that? It's because what I want you to see is this, is that the tool that Jesus Christ used against Satan was death. That's fine. But what here, and we'll say this last thing because this is worth taking us there. It says the devil has the power of death. What does that mean? What does that mean? What is the power of death? And this is where we're going here. We see what the power of death is in the next verse. Now, hold in your mind what I was just talking to you about. The physical death that Jesus Christ died on the cross was part and parcel of the suffering and the wrath of God. I'm not denying that. But it was only the tip of the iceberg. The greatest, uh, the greatest portion of the suffering was the, was the abandonment, was the tear in the relational uh, connection and unity of the Son and the Father. Now, to just by side note, we do understand that there was no break between the Trinity. That ontological connection and, and the, the baseline Trinitarian connection, the, the connection on the level of being was never severed. God can't stop being God. On the, on the cross, God did not die. Jesus Christ died in his humanity and paid the price for human beings. And in his human soul, remember when Jesus said, oh, my soul is so troubled. You know, how can I do this? You know, what should I say? You know, let this cup pass from me? No, may it never be. It was for this hour that I come. You know, Father, glorify me. And so this, this bearing of all of those burdens by Jesus Christ was the weight of sin and death and separation for a moment until he resurrected from the grave. So, if the, if the physical death was only part, but it was the death of, of, of him being separated, him going into Sheol, him going into the grave... What is the power of death that's been destroyed? What is this power of death that Satan yields that's been destroyed? And I say, I say it's here. And this is what Jesus delivers us from in his substitutionary atonement. To deliver, or this is going to be important, to free. All those who through fear of death. This is the power of death that Satan wields. <clears throat> Let me ask it this, this way. Do you think that Satan has the power of death to decide who lives and who dies? Is he the one sovereign over that? Now, has he granted that from time to time by God to take someone's life in maybe an act of punishment or something like that? We can see some of that. But who is he obedient to even when he exercises that? God. God. 
Who's sovereign over death? God. Who has the power of death, point blank, period, proper? God. So is Satan then the ruler of death? Is he sovereign over death? Can he kill whoever he wants? No, not at all. He is subject to God on that matter. But he does have the power of death, whatever that means, right? And so as we break this down, we understand that it is, this is what I'm going to say, what I understand, that it's the fear of death that is the power that he has concerning death that enslaves people, that brings them to a place of destruction. I wanted to do this this way, and I wrote this down because I didn't want to jumble it up. Let me try to tie together for you uh, the creation mandate, this whole understanding of dominion, Adam and Eve created in the garden, their fall, their uh, subsequent subjection to fallen angels, and so on and so forth, okay? And how the fear of death, so we, know, we understand here that it was through, it was through the fear of death. So the fear of death, so we're going to, okay, this is going to be good. I mean, I hope, I hope it's as good as you as it was as me. Deliverance is fearlessness. We have in our understanding that deliverance is escape from eternal damnation in hell. And it is that. Praise God. But have I not been hammering this every week? That <clears throat> we have a short-sighted view of salvation. That we think that salvation and deliverance from sin is this by and by pie in the sky that one day we'll get to enjoy and, 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 and out there somewhere, right? But over and over and over and over in the Bible and in Hebrews, it is that the, the Lord who reigns has set you free now, okay? So the, the conduit through which uh, lifelong slavery comes. So the way that human beings are made slaves, they are made to be subject to lifelong slavery. They are subjected they lose dominion. This is what happened to Adam. This is going to show us what happened to Adam. The way that that happens came through or by means of the fear of death. It was the fear. Now, what does that mean? The fear of death. So you're telling me Adam was afraid to die? So he ate the fruit? What? I don't understand. If Adam was afraid to die, he wouldn't have ate the fruit because he had already been told the day you eat of it, you surely will die. What are you talking about, Brandon? He wasn't afraid to die. He, he, was, he was fearless of death. And so that's why he ate the fruit, because God told him, you're going to die. You should, you should be afraid. And he's like, I'm not afraid. And he died. <laughs> right? So what does this mean? How can it be then that if it's true that human beings are subject to lifelong slavery through the fear of death, that this happened to Adam this way? If the fear of death is the power of Satan to bring people into subjection this way, then what, how does that work? Okay, check this out and think about it this way. The problem that we have in understanding this is really a problem with definitions. We, we found this in our annihilation debate. When Keith and I debated, uh, Chris, Date, and Mark, we found that we couldn't even hardly have a conversation because of the vast distinction of definitions okay so there's two ways to think about death there's two or at least two ways to think about death and two ways to think about life there is life as you would normally understand it and that is that you're breathing you have a heartbeat right you're walking around you're alive okay then there's another understanding of life 
And that is, is that you know God, who is life. That you are, have been spiritually awakened and united to God, who is life. That your spirit has been reconnected to the Holy Spirit. And that you, your spiritual heart has begun to pump. And you've been given a new heart. You've been born again to a new life. The old man is dead. Behold, the new has come. Sinners are dead in their trespasses and sins, okay? Though they live. Believers are alive in their souls, in their spirits while they live. Two ways to understand life, but there's also two ways to understand death. There is the idea of ceasing to exist. You're in contrast to what we just said, your heart stops beating. Your lungs stop, stop pumping, you stop breathing, and you're dead. Okay? But there's also another understanding of death, and it is separation from God. We simply call that the absence of life. Death is the absence of life. Now, please just trek with me here for a second. Okay? I hope this, this is revolution. This is revealing to me. Death is the absence of life. So what's the fear of death? Think about it this way. There are two ways to fear death. A, you can fear death from a position of faith in God and an understanding of what life is. Okay? This is the fear of losing relationship with God, knowing that all life and meaning is found in Him. Okay? So if your understanding of life is right and your understanding of death is right, then when you fear death, you fear the Lord. And that's to say, God is the only source of life. And so true death would be losing relationship with God. Is that making sense? Now there's another way to understand the fear of death as well. You can also fear death from a position of distrust of God and ignorance of life. This is the fear of losing the physical goods and physical pleasures of the world that you have been convinced contains life. This is the fear of man. Is it clicking so far? Now, let's go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam's in the garden. Well, let me just read this because I, I, <clears throat> I, I wrote it down. I, I typed it out. I want you to see the contrasting points here between Adam and Christ. Adam feared death, even though there was nothing but life on the horizon. Adam had been made perfect. He had been given everything that he could possibly imagine and death was nowhere in sight. He only had life. And this fear of death led him to question God's faithfulness to be the continual everlasting source of life. So as Adam is in the garden, he has life. He has no need to fear death. But when he begins to question God... And the question goes like this. The serpent comes and he says, did God really say? Actually, God knows you're missing out. And God doesn't want you to see all that he sees. He says, Adam, 
you understand there's more to life than just God. As a matter of fact, Adam, true life is in this fruit right here. This physical thing that you can grab with your hands and taste with your mouth and take into your body. In other words, he's saying God is not the only source of life. There is a source of life that comes from this physical world. And so Adam's wheels started to turn. And his, his distrust in God started to grow. And he began to fear death. And that fear of death looks like this. That he was going to miss out on life. He was going to... Remember, death is the absence of life. And if you're convinced that God is life, then you will sacrifice anything for God. But if you're convinced that the world is life, then you'll sac sacrifice God for the world. And when you fear that you lose out on the life that the world is offering you, you have great fear of death. And so you will go after it to the sacrifice of God. Listen. He chose to step outside of God's perfect created order to find a different source of life. He and all his children were condemned to everlasting death. Why? Because there is no life outside of God. And so his fear of Missing out on the worldly definition of life caused him to abandon God in pursuit of that. Now, in, And all of those who were counted among his children have been locked into that exact same lifelong slavery. And why is it lifelong? It's lifelong because we are created continual worshipers 24-7 who pursue after life. And it's lifelong because the only source of life is God. And since we have turned our backs on God, we pursue after, the, after life in the things of the world. And since they can never, ever, ever supply that life, it is an ongoing, forever, everlasting slavery that we have to be bound to to try to get a life that is not even out there. Does that make sense? That's why we are, that sinners are in bondage to lifelong slavery because they fear losing out on life, but they fail to understand that life is in God. Now, in contrast, <clears throat> this may be a little controversial. I'm all right with that. <clears throat> Christ feared death. Christ feared death. You say, Christ was the man. He did not fear death. Matthew 26, 39. He's troubled. He's torn up. Can this, can this cup pass from me? Is there another way? I don't want to do this. Great drops of blood. This is actual medical condition. Now, whether it's Poetic language, whether it's historical narrative, looks like historical narrative to me. It's these great drops of sweat, blood, whatever. It, it indicates that there was 
And he had this great fear. Is this this sin? Is this him giving in to the power of death that is wielded by Satan? No. This is this kind of fear. What was was Christ agonizing over in the garden? Yes. The the thought that he would, because he knew. He knew the cup. Remember the disciples were like, you know, um, my brother Chris shared this at SCA the other morning. He said, talking about leadership, he said, you know, the disciples came to Jesus. Like, you know, one said, let me sit on your right. And the other one says, let me sit on your left. And Jesus' response is really, really insightful. Basically, he says, you can't drink the cup I'm about to drink. He said, they said we can drink it. And he's like, you will drink it. What? They can't drink the cup. They can't drink that. You can't drink that cup. Brother Dwayne, that's what I was telling you this morning. You can't drink that cup. You can't drink that cup. You can't stomach it. Jesus Christ in the garden, he's agonizing. The fear of death. He's afraid to be separated from his father. Why? Because he he didn't want to lose out on the goods of this world? No. No, it was the fear of the Lord. He knew that all goodness and all wonder and all majesty and life and blessing and peace was in God. And the thought of losing out on relationship with God, even for a brief moment to do this work, was agonizing. Christ feared death. But though there was nothing but death on the horizon. Remember, Adam had nothing but life on the horizon. All he had to do was just obey God. He would have never died. But though there was nothing but death on the horizon for Christ, (coughs) he loved righteousness and hated wickedness to the degree that he stayed the course and trusted God to be the source of life for all that trust and obey. He and his children slash brothers were rewarded with everlasting life. You see, Adam traded everlasting life and unity with God for temporary fleeting pleasures here in this physical world. Jesus Christ traded this this relationship with the Father in order to put to death the supposed life that existed in this world. And he lost his temporary life. He lost his human uh, body. He lost his direct connection to God in this sacrificial moment so that the reality of God being connected with man might be reinstated. That's the degree that Jesus Christ loved God and loved you, that he traded it all, that you might be counted among his sheep. So as we move on, does that make sense? The fear of death. Now, just to kind of recap and summarize, we still deal with this. This is this this right here, the the fear of death is why you still struggle with all your sins. Every bit of it. Every single one of them. So why do you go back to the bottle? Is because you are afraid of the absence of the life that the bottle offers. You fail to realize that what that bottle is lying to you about is actually found in God. 
why do you go back to the, the gambling? Why do you go back to the porn? Why do you go back to work? Why are you a workaholic? Why do you go back to the table when you already weigh 450 pounds? Hey, you think that's funny. You ever heard this phrase? Um, what's the phrase? It is, what's the, what's the thing where you eat? At, huh? What? No, not gluttony. I know that's the sin. It's uh, when you eat to, to make yourself feel better. Come on. Huh? Comfort food. Comfort food. I had a discussion one time with this guy who smoked weed all the time. He's like, it's not a sin. It's not a sin. I'm like, well, it's illegal, so it's already a sin, right? <laughs> but besides that, you know, the common argument is, is that, well, smoking weed is no worse than alcohol. A lot more people die drinking alcohol than they do smoking weed. And I'll say amen to that, that a lot more people do die drinking alcohol. Now, this new weed out here I'm hearing is just nutty. But anyway, going back, I said, well, let's just test that theory. Now, can you smoke weed and it never be a sin? Another conversation for another day. Between you and God, we'll talk about it. We'll test the scriptures, whole nother debate. My question to him was, what does weed do for you? So what does it do for you? Because he couldn't give it up, right? He, could, he wouldn't give it up, like fight mad if you told him to give it up. And I'm just like, okay, okay, man, okay, right? Smoke a joint, let's talk, okay? I'm just kidding. I didn't tell him that. <clears throat> but he was going to do it anyway. <laughs> so we have this conversation. I say, well, brother, I said, Listen, just, okay, what is it? let's just talk it out. Then. What does it do for you? He says, well, listen, man, I can't, stop smoking. I can't stop smoking weed. Me and my wife would surely get a divorce. Now, I'm not making that up. Either. You know, I, I got to smoke when I get home because it just gives me peace. You know, I got to smoke because I just feel okay then. And, man, you know, it's joy. And I can relate to my, my friends and my family better. All right, all right. I said, well, what does Jesus do in your life? Isn't, isn't Jesus supposed to be your peace? Isn't he supposed to be the, he says, you know, Jesus says, behold, I give you a new commandment. You know, love each other as I have loved you. Isn't Jesus supposed to be the means by which you relate to everyone around you in a humble, uh, loving way? Isn't he that connecting point? Isn't Jesus your joy? Isn't Je So you see this, right? So we've given to all these sins because we're afraid if we don't do these things, we're going to miss out on life. And it's a fear of death. It's a fear of missing out on the pleasures as if they offer something that God can't offer. So th this is where slavery comes from. <clears throat> I read you this text next last week, but just to do it again, maybe this will come into more focus now, knowing that. So have no fear of them. This is Jesus speaking here. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say it in the light. Say it in the light. Don't be afraid that you're going to miss out on something out there because you have a relationship with me, and I am life. I'm God. It doesn't matter what happens on this world. It doesn't matter what you lose. It doesn't matter what comes at you. They can take your own very life, but they can't take life. There needs to be no fear of death because the death you should have died has been died already. There is no fear of death for Christians. Not if you're living in accordance with the Word of God and walking by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no fear because that death has already been died and there is nothing on the horizon for you now but life. 
What I tell you in the dark, say it in the light. And what you hear whisper, proclaim it on the housetops. We're to stand up, not be afraid. Jesus is king. Come at me, dogs. <laughs> and do not fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. You see what he's doing here? Do not feel the loss of physical goods and physical well-being. Why? Because true life is not found on this earth. True life is in Christ. It's in God, in unity with Him. And you can lose everything down here, but if you've got Him, you're fine. Found in God. It says, don't feel the one that can kill the body, this physical outward body. Go ahead, right? We, now, we don't want to die, you know? We want to live, but why? So that we can share the glory of God and spread the true life through our physical life. And these two, listen, I'm not a... Dualist in the sense that the material is bad and the spiritual is good. No, the spiritual comes in and redeems the material. I talked to you about that in the first part of chapter 2. That through Christ, we've already started the inaugurated kingdom and presence of the rule and reign of Christ in and through the believers. That we are to begin to restore reality, even as it is now, by the proclamation of the gospel that rearranges, rewires, and puts things back together. That you live now. You go to war now. And it'll be consummated on that day. It says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is where I pulled both of those fears from. The fear of man, the fear of Lord. Both are a type of fear of death. One is the fear of the absence of the physical life. One is the fear of the absence of the spiritual life or God. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell or not two sparrows. It goes on. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable. You get the point. <clears throat> I've got a little video for you to, to demonstrate this. Now, what should be the result? What should be the result of these truths and these realities? It shouldn't be you guys sitting out there going, man, another hour and 15, man, this guy. No, no, listen. Do you see what's going on here? Is that God Almighty came down, took on flesh in order to pay the sin debt that we could not pay. And in doing so, he has given us freedom from the fear of death that we might truly live now without any hesitation, without any uh, regard for ourselves at least over and above the things of God that we would be fearless soldiers marching in the command army of God remember in chapter uh, 2 the earlier chapter parts of chapter 2 where he says that through suffering he was he was made into the perfect he was revealed as the perfect captain of their salvation this is what this is that Christ has come down onto the front lines that he is the king that has uh, humbled himself going going to the front lines of the army to blaze the trail that we could not blaze he is david who went out onto the battlefield with all of the israelites quaking in their boots because of the fear of death david had no fear of death he only had life in sight he trusted god that even if his physical life was lost god would be glorified and what happened he went out and he slayed the giant with his own sword. And who were the benefactors of that? The Israelites who were quaking in their boots. And you better believe, you better believe 
that when that giant fell, those Philistines hung their head because they knew they'd been beat. That was like a, the, yeah, because he knew that he'd been beat. And he laid that golden fiddle on that. I couldn't help it. I had to. But I bet you money when those Philistines hung their heads because of the great defeat of the little shepherd boy with his little sling, I bet you money those Israelite soldiers who had just been terrified, shaking in their boots over in the corner, probably peeing themselves, I bet they jumped up, brushed themselves off, and said, Yeah, take that! <laughs> right? Why? Because the victory had been handed to them. And this wasn't planned, but that verse, I've always, I've always found that verse fascinating in Romans 8. It says, You are now more than conquerors through Christ. Wait, what? Man, I don't even understand. What is it to be more than a conqueror? I'm like, like conqueror is like you conquered it. You won, right? What's more than a conqueror? How about the fact that you win the victory and you didn't even have to fight? You just walk into the, to the victory. You're like, here I am. The victory's already been won. That's what I was telling you, brother. The battle's been won. It's not your fight. So, does you know those soldiers jumped up so here's a little video and um i'm not i'm not promoting this movie necessarily i do love it but maybe you shouldn't watch it has a couple of bad things i have to fast forward through but this demonstrates and this also is a demonstration that all of reality knows what i'm saying well not what i'm saying what the scriptures say all of reality feels it in their bones. Every, just about every movie that you watch has hijacked the heroic storyline from the Bible and they have used it for their material gains and their monetary gains. Anytime you have an action movie that has a solo hero that saves the world, that's Jesus. And they robbed that. The, this book was the first book. It was the first story and they all robbed it. Tell me they didn't rob this from Jesus. Turn the lights off, please. Hold up. Somebody get those lights. There we go. All right, check it out. That was his hope. Should any free soul come across that place. In all the countless centuries yet to be, may all our voices whisper to you from the ageless stones. Go tell the Spartans passerby that here by Spartan law we lie. And so my king died and my brothers died barely a year ago. Long I pondered my king's cryptic talk of victory. Time has proven him wise. For from free Greek to free Greek, the word was spread that bold Leonidas and his 300, so far from home, laid down their lives, not just for Sparta, but for all Greece and the promise this country holds. Now, here on this rugged patch of earth called Plataea, Xerxes' hordes face obliteration! Oh! 
Just there, the barbarians huddle. Sheer terror gripping tight. Their hearts with icy fingers, knowing full well what merciless horrors they suffered at the swords and spears of 300. Yet they stare now across the plain at 10,000 Spartans commanding 30,000 free Greeks. mysticism and tyranny, and ushering a future brighter than anything we can imagine. We'll have to work on some of those sinking issues, but you see what I'm saying? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I just need a sword and a shield. I would have been running down through this aisle with that. Jesus Christ is that great king who laid down his life to blaze the trail that you and I would be who we've been called to be. When we think about the life of Christ, when we think about what he has done, what does it do inside of us? Does it have an actual, literal, physical um, uh, presence in you, effect on you? Does it cause you to move into this place of thinking and action? Well, we're almost done. Uh, that was uh, the bulk of what I had. But I do want to finish up with this right here. Propitiation. So for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is the act of satisfying God's wrath to bring unity with God. So as we break down the verse, we understand we already talked about this. That Christ did not take on humanity to help angels. He took on humanity to pay for the sins of humanity. Explicitly and specifically, the offspring of Abraham. So the next question is, who is the offspring of Abraham? Galatians 3, 7, 16, and 23 through 29 tell us fairly clearly. I do want to point out, and I could read all of these, Galatians was written, we, most people think, and I agree, primarily to a Gentile church. And so this is breaking down and showing how the Old Testament promises relate to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in these texts right here, we see that it is those who are of faith or the offspring or the children of Abraham. Further, as it breaks that down, it says that Jesus Christ is the seed, singular, uh, of the promises of Abraham. So these blessings and these promises were made to Abraham and his offspring, not to offsprings. And 
that seed, that offspring, was Jesus. And those who would be counted as offsprings, children of Abraham, would be those who would be born again through the Lord Jesus Christ and born into that family and become the offspring of Abraham, children according to the promise. Now remember that Hebrews is written primarily to the Jews. And so as they're reading this, they're understanding this as well, that those who come by promise, but they're also having view, doubtlessly, that through the Abrahamic line, through that lineage, through Jacob, and through who, who came from that? Israel. Jews. Jews. So this is written to Jews, and it's speaking of the offspring of Abraham. So he's speaking to these believing Jews, and he's saying to them, he is leading them, taking them to this place to say that it was not the angels that God, that Christ was uh, concerned with helping. It wasn't them, but it was you who believe. It, were you, it, it was you. You are the ones who Christ came and made the sacrifice for to bring you out of darkness and into light, to set you free from the bondage of sin, to release you from the fear of death, that you might be fearless, that you might be who you've called to be, been called to be. Because let's remember now, in our context, what were these Jews afraid of? They were afraid of death. They were afraid of being kicked out of these different synagogues and these different places and because they wouldn't go back to their old life. They were being pushed and shown and uh, they were being taught why they should not go back. Why? Because there is nothing back there. Everything that you need, everything that means anything is here in Christ. So remain. Don't fear those out there. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. We've already touched on this a lot. This is hitting it, hammering this home. I think it's added this right here, uh, which is a little bit more uh, uh, extensive than it was earlier. In every single respect. So we had this big debate, even in the annihilation debate, and I've been having this conversation. Did Jesus have a human soul? If Jesus didn't have a human soul, he could not save humans with a soul. Jesus Christ, in every respect, was made like we are. It was necessary. Now, here's why. Because it was necessary to be the perfectly suited sacrifice. He had to be, in every respect, like we are, in, able to, uh, in order to be able to pay the price that he paid. Because he had to pay the price of a perfect human, right? That's the substitute. If he would have been just another human who sinned, well, what good would it do? What, why would God trade? Uh, a sinful human for a sinful human it would not be a good trade the the great exchange the trade that we saw was a perfect human with an imperfect human that was the trade that was the deal it had to be that way so he had to be that way to be the perfectly suited sacrifice but as we read further what does this mean right here so that he might become uh so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest well it was necessary to be made like he was made uh, to be the perfectly suited offerer of the perfect sacrifice. You see, Jesus isn't just the perfect sacrifice. He's also the perfect high priest and the only one that was able to offer the sacrifice. So in the Old Testament, we understand that the sacrifices them, themselves fell short and it was unable to clean, cleanse the conscience. It was unable to do the true work that needed to be done to purify both the conscience and the soul. 
but also the high priests were unable to rightly offer the sacrifice because they were impure too. When we get to uh, chapter 10 of Hebrews, we'll talk all about that. That's why the, the Old Testament high priests, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could go offer sacrifices for other people because they had to offer sacrifices for themselves too. And so it was an imperfect sacrificer uh, sacrificing an imperfect sacrifice. Bula, say that 10 times fast. Jesus Christ is the perfect offerer, the perfect sacrificer of the perfect sacrifice. And it had to be this way uh, if it was going to be done <clears throat> at all. Propitiation is the great divide between Christ and all other religions. No other religion, no other religion holds this. No other religion holds that God, who uh, is perfect, came down and took on human flesh to propitiate your sin, to pay the sin debt that you had incurred against God by becoming a man and sacrificing himself and trading places with you that you might have relationship and life in God. No other religion says that. They all offer some type of way that you can work your way back into his graces. But if the standard is perfection, and it has to be because God is perfect, and if he allows imperfect uh, entities, people, substance. If he allows imperfection into himself, then what is he? Imperfect. He can't. God necessarily has to remain perfect or he ceases to be God. The only, you can't work your way back into perfection because you don't have a time machine. Everybody, you've, everybody's sinned. And even if you could be perfect from here on out, you still have past sin that you can't deal with. Jesus Christ cleanses from past, present, and future sin. Perfect purification. All right, as these guys start to play, this is where, this is the last verse of this section, and this is where it really just gets meaty. So everything that I've said so far, I, I hope that it kind of, I hope it makes sense to you. I hope it helps clarify some things to see why we're in bondage to sin, why human beings struggle and they're in lifelong slavery because they have loved the things of the world and all this kind of stuff. But now practically speaking, you know, I hope you got all fired up that, that Jesus Christ has blazed a trail. He's running ahead of us, right? We're just chasing after him. You, bro, you don't have to fight against sin no more. Listen, this is the crazy thing. I'm telling you, you don't even have to fight against sin no more. Remember, you're more than conquerors. The, the, the victory's already won. As a matter of fact, the more you try to fight against sin, the more you'll fail. Why? Because it's not your fight. It's not your battle. You're not strong enough. You're not equipped for this work. And so when I say that we don't fight against sin, do I mean that we just give in to it? No, 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 no. Sin has to, the flesh has to be mortified. We have to kill sin. Well, John Owen said, I think, he said, always be killing sin or it will always be killing you. The question is not do we need to kill sin. Of course sin needs to be killed. The question is how do we do it? Do we turn toward our sin and say, all right, let's go. I've gotten strengthened up by Jesus. Now I'm going to whip you. No. You see, the, the, the thing that we need to wrap our minds around is that sin's already dead. We turn our back on it because there's no life in it. We turn our back on that sin. And when you turn your back on sin, you turn 180 degrees away from sin, who are you necessarily turning to? Christ, because he's the only one where true perfection in life is. So as you turn to Christ and you walk into Christ, you're killing the flesh, and it's not even you doing it. It's the victory that already exists in him. 
It's, it's amazing. It's just absolutely amazing. And this, this verse right here. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Isn't that beautiful? You know, some of you think, I can't relate to God. I mean, he's God, you know. He don't know what I'm going through. Man, he does. And it's on a practical level, right? Practical level. So <clears throat> let's say that you're struggling uh, and you're, you're not married or maybe you're single. Maybe you have gone through a tragic divorce and you're just struggling because you just feel all alone. Guess what? Jesus Christ knows what it's like far better than any human being ever has. He was separated from the Father in relational aspects to pay the sin debt, and he felt the weight of that like it's never been felt before. And you know what? He made it through that because he's perfect. And so who better to go to that can understand to say, you feeling alone? I know what it's like to be alone. That's what Jesus is saying. I, I know what it's like. You, brother, you struggle with having your body broken? missing you know chad's had his leg removed and you know, i bet you struggle man i could i say i can't relate i i can't imagine what you're going through i can love you and i do you know i do and i can pray for you and you know i do but i can't relate but i know one who can one who, who one who was cut off from the land of the living one who was beaten badly brutalized but you know what he stood up under and he made it through and this god this, this man, Chad, he's like, listen, I'm going to come hang out with you and live inside of you, and I'm going to show you how to get through that. And not only how to get through it, but how to suffer so well that other people will look at you, and they'll start to be born. Your suffering, your death, the power that this, this corruption has in you, whatever degree, when that's turned toward Christ, is utilized and used in such a way that it's the birthplace, oh man, that pain is the birthplace of life because of the great, great work that God is doing. And it goes on and on and on. It goes on and on. You, you struggling with betrayal? Struggling with betrayal? And, and people might say, well, you know, Jesus was tempted, but he never gave in to sin. So he doesn't really know what I'm going through. You know, I gave in to, I feel, I gave in to my sin. He doesn't feel that. Well, I want you to think about it this way. And I heard another guy say this, and I'm robbing it from him. He said this. Sometimes we might think that Jesus Christ doesn't know the extent of our temptation and suffering because he never gave in to it. But that's exactly opposite, actually. Did you know that giving in to your temptation is, uh, it is taking the easy way out? I want you to think about this. Let's say, let's, let's, take it down to a, let's take it down to a level we can all feel. You're sitting there. You just got your little workout in. You did 20 minutes on the stair stepper, right? <laughs> because you know you need to be healthier, and you know you're not in a good place, right? You know you need to lose weight. And over there on the counter, you walk in, you're feeling real good, you know. Look over on the counter, and there it is. Those zebra cakes, man, they get me every time. <laughs> and there it is. In its brown and white, milky-looking silk. And it's whispering to you. And you know they come in packs of two. And you know what that means? Doubly tempting. And so I'm looking over there, that fine-looking pack of zebra cakes. And I'm like, what's up, girl, you know? And it's like, hey, come over here for a minute. And I'm like, no, I can't. 
And it's just this weight. And you know, this suffering that I'm going through with these zebra cakes. I'm like, get behind me, Satan. And then Satan just tickles the end of my earlobe right there. He's like, oh, but you know you want me. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and so what I do, I feel in his face, but I, on the other side, I'm like, no. And it's suffering. No, I, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I took the easy way out. I gave in. I didn't feel all the weight of the suffering, did I? But Jesus, but Jesus, how tempted do you think that he was? When he was in that garden, the, the thing I told you earlier, I know we're getting late, but the thing I told you earlier, he was in the garden, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, he's like, God, is there any way out? Is there any other way? Can this be done another way? Like how, what, how much suffering and that temptation in that moment to, to bail out. And he's, he asks of himself, he says, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Father, save me from this? Save me from this what? Save me from the weight of this temptation, the weight of this suffering. Save me from the, ah, the weight of this is so much. He could have lessened the weight and bailed by throwing it off and taking the easy way out and doing it another way. Like you did or I did with the zebra cake. Or the website or the bottle or the bag or the money or the whatever. But no, Jesus suffered under the weight of it until it absolutely crushed him. But he didn't stay dead. He threw it off upon the realization of life and the fact that he had no sin. He resurrected from the grave. And what he's telling you is, is that every place you are and every place you've been and every place you're going to go, I've been in that exact same place times infinity and I know the way out. I am the way out. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. But when you do come, this is how you come. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, no. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows how to win. Let us then, let us then, listen church, let us then, since that's true, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne room of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. When you're struggling, you, you walk right on up in the throne room of grace, confidently. You say, I need somebody to help me, help me. Somebody that knows how to help me. Who knows? Who in here knows? Jesus says, I got you, bro. Let's go. Last story. I was in a trailer park one time. I was in a trailer park. And there was these bullies in the trailer park. They was big, bad bullies. I could call a name, and most of y'all would know who they are because they are some big, bad bullies. And I was 10, 11 years old, right? And these were some rough neck, red neck, fighting machines. And they was in my trailer park. And they was bullying people. And I was scared. But I would fight. But I knew I'd get whooped. So I ran into the house. And uh, 
my mom's boyfriend at the time. He was like a rough neck, redneck, and he was older. He was a grown man. And I'll never forget it. I ran into the house. We had a good relationship, too. I ran into the house. And I was like, these rednecks out here are going to whip us. It's a true story. And I'll never forget what he said. He's laying down. And he swings his feet off the couch, and they hit the floor. And he says, let me get my shoes. <laughs> and I said, all right. I opened the screen door to the trailer and said, hey, where y'all at? Why? Because I had the one who was going to take care of business. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Let's all stand to our feet. Let's all stand to our feet. Hey, listen, just know, every time you cry for help, Jesus says, let me put my shoes on. All right? Come and do business with God and know you're not alone. I promise you are not alone.